Thank you, Jack, for that ministry and music. One of my favorite hymns. It is well with my soul. I trust that you have picked up a handout that was in the back on a stool in Narthex. If you haven't, I would encourage you to get one as we consider Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26 together this evening. We note that last week we saw that since all Solomon's hard work was not producing any meaningful change to the societal ills, Solomon decided that he would simply learn to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Solomon decided to be self-indulgent. Ecclesiastes 2.3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. I have a series of quotes tonight from Philip Riken from his commentary entitled Ecclesiastes, Why Everything Matters. He writes, and I quote, Next, the preacher king pursued pleasure, Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. If wisdom ended in sorrow, maybe self-indulgence would lead to happiness. So he built magnificent buildings and created beautiful gardens. He savored the luxuries of wine, women, and song, never abstaining from pleasure or restraining his appetites. Solomon grabbed for all the gusto he could get, yet even the greatest pleasures in life failed to satisfy his soul. If he said it once, he said it a thousand times. It was all vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun, end quote. So Solomon discovered that self-indulgence is vanity also. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 and 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. He had first given himself to pursuing wisdom and trying to solve the world's problems. That was vanity. Now foolishness was vanity as well. So the question is, what advantage does wisdom have over foolishness? Neither one of them seem to produce happiness, so what advantage does wisdom have over foolishness? That's the question for this evening. And the theme is a consideration of wisdom versus foolishness. Is there any value in living wisely? Once again, quoting Philip Riken. What the preacher is telling us, therefore, is that after pursuing pleasure, he reconsidered the claims of wisdom and mad folly. He wanted to compare the two, studying the difference between the right way and the wrong way to live, and then see if that would help him understand the purpose of life. So the key verse is Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And uh, it almost appears like those are three things, but uh, in the original, uh, madness is a uh, modifier of folly. It's a mad folly. Folly is, is madness. The word foolishness or folly, as it is used here, means stupidity or without rationale and without reason. 
We might say it's to live life by one's emotions or instinct as opposed to a reasoned, thought-out life. Uh, it's to follow, quote, animal instincts. You know, an animal doesn't reason. An animal just is driven by its hunger, its passions, its desires. Doesn't think about consequences of its actions. It simply follows and does what it, quote, feels like doing, what these passions or emotions move that animal to do. That's the characteristic here of the fool, the person who simply just follows their pleasures. Whatever they feel like doing, they do. Their response is an emotional response. Uh, and that's why it refers to a, a mad folly. You know, madness, craziness, is really simply just being irrational. Irrational behavior. Behavior that makes no sense. So the question is, what's the advantage of living wisely as simply fulfilling your desires? Just doing what's going to make you happy, you think. And of course, Solomon found out that that doesn't really make him happy afterwards, but still, what, what advantage is there of living wisely as opposed to foolishly? Living by a reason, thought out process as opposed to a laissez-faire, just doing what you feel like. In particular, Solomon is going to consider living wisely versus living foolishly into consideration that he is not going to live forever and someone will follow him. Here's my last quote from Riken. Michael Eaton offers the following literal translation. And I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what kind of person is it who will come after the king in the matter of what has already been done? When he speaks of the matter of what has already been done, Coleth seems to be referring to the present struggle to understand the meaning of life. When he speaks of the person who will come after the king, he is looking ahead to the future and is wondering who else will have the same questions that he has about human existence. With those people in mind, he wants to write a definitive statement about wisdom and mad folly. As the wisest and wealthiest king, he is in a unique position to do this. Who could ever add anything to the experience of Solomon? He is the ultimate test case. If he cannot find the meaning of life, who can? What hope is there for anyone to answer these questions? But the preacher king is able to understand the purpose of our existence, then what he says about the meaning of the life will stand. So here is this test. Wisdom versus foolishness. Well, he begins by saying wisdom is superior to foolishness, but wisdom has its limits. There's, certainly it's better to live life by one's reasons and thoughts as opposed to simply following one's emotions and animal desires, but it has its limits. Consideration. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. 
The wise person can see what he is doing and the ramifications of his actions. So the walking with his eyes in his head, we often refer to having one's eyes wide open, it's thinking through and understanding the consequences of one's choices. To realize that there is a day of reckoning. I'm not talking about judgment day, but, but rather that there's a natural course of events that follow from a particular course of life that one follows. You can expect a certain outcome. And two, seemingly the wise person sees the pitfalls in life and should be able to avoid them. So the wise person can see where he's walking, see where this road leads, see that it is trailing off or that it's filled with pit holes and uh, able to step around them to avoid some of the difficulties and hardships of life. And conversely, however, the fool does not foresee the consequences of his decisions and actions. He lives his life without purpose, stumbling along like a blind man who has no eyes to see, or like the person who's living in darkness. That person is just trying to feel their way along, uh, trying to ascertain where they are. And there are many pitfalls that they could easily fall into not being able to see them. Observation. And at the end of verse 14, well, I'll read the whole verse. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. So despite the foresight and anticipation of the wise to anticipate danger and harm, nevertheless, he eventually experiences the same situations that the fool experiences. Both the wise and foolish experience prosperity and hardship, sickness and in health. And ultimately, which is the focus of the passage, is that both are going to die. Both are going to die. So what sense is wisdom better than foolishness? Conclusion. Now Solomon applies this truth to his own life. Now I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? All right, maybe I can see the consequences. Maybe I can see the outcomes of my decisions, but when it's all said and done, the fool's life looks very much like the life of the wise. And ultimately, both are going to die. So what has it gotten the individual? So in the end, where's his witness wisdom gotten him? Verse 15. I said in my heart, what happens to a fool will happen to me also. Why then I've been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. He discovers that wisdom has not been able to achieve all that he had hoped for. Wisdom cannot guarantee security. Wisdom can't prevent an individual from becoming sick. Wisdom is no guarantee in life. 
So that leads him to number two. Wisdom is no better than folly, for the wise and the fool all come to an end in this life. Consideration, verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in days to come, all have long been forgotten. Both are going to pass away. Both are going to come to an end. Verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten. How the wise die, just like the fool. Now when it says that the wise die, just like the fool, it's not talking about the manner of one's death. It's not saying that that they die in the same way, not saying that they both die by the sword or they both die of a particular disease, but it's talking about the fact. The fact. Both die. Both die. Both come to an end in their life. No matter how wise, no matter how careful, no matter how thoughtful, the wise and the fool are going to die. Number three, wisdom can't guarantee that the one who follows him will also be wise. Consideration. I hated all my toil in which I toil under sun, and here is the reason, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. It's the old, you can't take it with you. And so there is this recognition that all his labor, all his wealth, all that he is able to amass is going to be given to somebody else. And then this observation, verse 19, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool? Who knows whether he is going to make good choices or bad choices. And yet, he will be the master for all which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. I will have no say. I will not be able to protect or to guard all that I have amassed or all that I have accrued. This person just might undo all the good that I have done. And Solomon, in his wisdom, understood that reality. And it was a reality. For if you remember, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, it is under his reign that the kingdom is divided. And the vast majority of the kingdom is lost. And it goes to Jeroboam. Rehoboam didn't follow the advisors of his father. He followed those of his own age. And they gave him some pretty poor advice. And he followed that advice. And all that Solomon was able to amass and all that he was able to accomplish went down the drain. The very thing that 
Solomon feared actually became a reality. After his death, the one to whom he gave it was not wise. So conclusion, verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under sun, seeing I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all that which I have toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. You work your life to build a business. But who's going to take that business over? What's it going to be like after you're gone? Think of all the time and effort that you may be putting into an organization. Who knows who's going to lead that organization next and what it's going to be like. Fourthly, Wisdom can't guarantee that the one who follows will be deserving. It's very close to the first, but slightly different. The first one was, who can tell whether or not he is wise or a fool? The second is, whether or not he's deserving. Consideration. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. And again, under the sun is from an earthly perspective. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. Observation, verse 21, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. You work hard. You save. You are frugal. <laughs> you go without. You think about the consequences of uh, rainy days. So in your wisdom, you are planning, and you deny yourself certain pleasures. You go without certain amenities because you're trying to establish and you're, you're trying to make things secure and safe. And so when you die, you have a, a certain amount of wealth. Now Solomon had a tremendous amount of wealth, but you know you may have labored and you may have gone without and, and here you are and you now have this bit of wealth, and you die, and you pass that inheritance on to somebody who didn't do anything to achieve it, and that person just might be a lazy bum. And that person might just squander everything that you gave your whole life to build up. And have nothing to pass on to their children, because they have wasted their inheritance, like the prodigal son in the New Testament. So how do you know? How can you guarantee concerning the one who will follow? So the conclusion is, end of verse 21, this also is vanity and a great evil. It's not only foolish, but it actually undermines 
Um, you might actually do this person who follows you more harm because they don't learn responsibility. They don't learn to act in a wise manner. Number five, wisdom understands that life is hard. Consideration. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? This hard work, observation. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Here is a person who again is striving for success, working hard, experiencing difficulty, giving up opportunity, and is not even able to sleep at night. Their mind just races, thinking about other things they must do or the way in which their wealth might be taken away from them, thinking about how to protect their future. Conclusion, this also is vanity. So now, finally, we get a good conclusion. Here we find true wisdom. That is, number six, wisdom learns to enjoy life as a gift of God. So wisdom learns to enjoy life. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is a positive thought that is going to recur throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. This is true wisdom. To be able to enjoy one's work and the fruit of one's work. Up until this point, work is all toil. Work is all vexation. Work is all misery. Work doesn't seem to have any benefit. But there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So why the change? What is bringing about this new perspective? Well, B, what is new is that Solomon learns to enjoy life as a gift from God as opposed to the rights of his labor. Ecclesiastes 2.24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and enjoy his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. There is the new perspective. God's hand. He recognizes now God's activity. He sees labor as a gift. He sees this as an opportunity to serve God. He sees this as an opportunity to honor God. Now labor has a meaning. Now labor has a purpose. Now labor has a value. Whether, therefore, you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That changes the way we do our work when we're doing it not to just amass a fortune, but we're doing it as a means of glorifying God, taking pride in our work. There's what's known as a Christian work ethic, giving our employers 
and honest day labor. And finding joy in the outcome of one's work because you see that as a gift of God as well. Matthew chapter 6, Therefore be not anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for the things of itself. Sufficient of the day is its own evil. Do not be anxious concerning your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, or your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and drink, and the body than raiment. Consider the birds of the air, how they toil not, neither do they reap nor gather in your barns, but heavenly your Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can one add one cubit unto his statue? Consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, will not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Be not anxious for your life, what you shall eat or drink, or for your body, what you'll put on. Is not the life more than food and the body than raiment? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore be not anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for the things of itself. Sufficient on the day its own evil. We don't have to lay awake at night. We don't have to worry about our security. We come to realize that you can't have a large enough account to cover every rainy day. That our our future is in God's hand. The one who follow us is in God's hand. The fruit of our labor is in God's hand. And with that perspective, life looks a lot different. For it's no longer dependent upon us but we can be dependent upon God. See, Solomon learned that wisdom does not guarantee success. Rather, it's the grace of God. Verse 25, For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Without God, all these things are meaningless. And without God, there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. In chapter 6, it begins by talking about, and I considered the events under heaven. How there is a man to whom God gives riches, wealth, and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet God giveth him not the ability to eat thereof, but a stranger eats it. This is also vanity, and it's an evil disease. It's like the rich man in the New Testament, Parabels, who builds his barns, and then he has so much that the barns can't hold, and so he builds more barns, 
And it says that he's a fool for he does not consider that he is going to die and that he is going to be in the presence of God. There are no guarantees. God is our guarantee. The one who pleases God enjoys what he has. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. And notice there is something added here. Joy. Joy. Before it's wisdom and knowledge in sorrow. Before it's wisdom and knowledge and vexation of spirit under the sun. But now, by God's grace, it's wisdom and knowledge and joy. And joy. That you can now enjoy what you have. What's key is it's not the experience that's different. It's the perspective of the experience. It's taking God into consideration on the one hand and ignoring God on the other. E, the one who does not please God does not enjoy what he has. The bold part in verse 26, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering, collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. That doesn't mean that always that the person who inherits is going to be a person who pleases God. For we've seen that in the earlier verses. Can't guarantee that the person's going to be wise. It could be a fool and can't guarantee they're going to be deserving. But it's saying that the sinner has this business His whole life is about gathering and collecting. He is hoarding only to give that over to one who is going to please God. This is vanity and a striving after win. Thus, his toil is meaningless. This is a striving after win, meaning This has no ultimate purpose. It has no ultimate end. It has no rational view in sight. For this person hasn't learned to enjoy what they have. This is not a verse about hedonism, but it's a verse about understanding God in finding our comfort and solace in him. There are two kinds of materialism. There is the materialism that seeks to find pleasure in opulence and houses and boats and material things. But then there's a very frugal materialism as well. People that hoard, people that don't spend a dime, people that guard every penny with the intent of, again, gaining security, having assurance that they're going to be protected, they're going to be taken care of in the future. Well, the New Testament says you can't serve God and money. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, or 
all kinds of things that take away people's security. People in the stock market, the stock market falls. Put your money in the bank. Somebody steals all the money in your bank. Right now, in the day and age in which you live, uh, identity theft is huge. No guarantee that your account isn't going to be hacked. No guarantee that the money you have set aside isn't going to be spent by somebody else. No guarantees. No guarantees. It's about a life that's lived in confidence of God as opposed to confidence in ourselves. And our work takes on a whole different perspective. If the sole purpose for our work isn't simply to make money and to find enjoyment in what that money can either buy or that money can protect for the future. But when one sees one's labor and work as a means of serving God and can trust God for the dispensing of the fruits of that labor after you die, that it can be given to one who pleases God, that God can foster and God can maintain and God can use the work that you have done and bless it to future generations. That there is a lasting remembrance. That there is a value to what you have done. That's a gift of God. That's a gift of God. So may God bless our labors. May God give us joy in our work. I hope that you don't wake up every morning and dread going to work. That must be an awful existence. I hope you're spared from that. I hope you can enjoy what you have. And to take it as the goodness of God that you have what you need to eat and drink and, and you can enjoy that. You can take pleasure in that. And you don't worry about the future every moment. And you can just enter into that you can sleep at night not worried about what you're going to lose tomorrow. But you can just go to bed. Psalmist said, I will lay myself down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. That's my only assurance. It's not my wealth. It's not my work. You can lose your job. Many people do. But you can't lose the blessing of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, be with us and help us. Guard our perspective on life. And the greatest advantage of wisdom, true wisdom, spiritual wisdom, is to have eyes in one's head that we can see what others cannot. And that is your grace. That is, to see now this fruit of my labor is not simply my accomplishments, but your enablement. And to have 
confidence that you who have provided in the past will provide in the future. And to see that now this, what we have has meaning for, we use it to your glory and your praise. And we take pleasure in what we have. Not thinking about what we don't have, but what we do have. And how you have promised to give us our daily bread. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.